This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it with Dragon's Breaths Forges only, Matt Parkinson, let's take care of a little bit of business, shall we? Number one, many thanks to Total Boat. Total Boat is a great company that they started out making uh, epoxies and paints and primers, polishing compounds for boat boaters, DIYers and stuff like that. And then they realized that the maker community could really benefit from all the great stuff that they have. So they do all these terrific two-part epoxies. Uh, they have an ultra UV cure resin, which I love. Um, and they have thick set casting epoxies, just totally awesome stuff. Guys like Keith Decent, Derek from Alden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, and Toby, a uh, Woby design. Woby design is, uh, one of my old, uh, guests, uh, Ben Paik made, took skateboards, cut them up, used total boat, two part epoxy, laminated them all together, built a bicycle out of the out of them it is only held together with total boat you're driving it around this and it's amazing so go to totalboat.com get yourself 10 percent off if you use the promo code full blast 10 it's really awesome stuff i've just been using their two-part epoxy for handle scales um their uv cure resin is amazing you put a little bit on and you hit it with that uv flashlight and it, it sets it's pretty amazing stuff so once again thank you total boat next is axe wax Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your handles, for your steel, for your wood, whatever you got. It's awesome stuff, and I love it. I actually use it for everything. I, I'm using it for all my handles. It just, it's just, it is nice to have a little something that's all-natural and food-safe, especially if you're doing culinary stuff or whatever. And if you go to axewax.us and put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. If you're in the UK, go to ukknifesupplies.com, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you get 10% off. Same thing in Australia at nordicedge.com.au, FULLBLAST10 gets you 10. And in the EU, Keith Colby over at knifematerial.at takes Full Blast 10 to get yourself 10% off your order. And it's great. So if it's, it's reasonably priced, you're giving you 10% off anyway. Go get yourself some really great stuff. I love Axe Wax. Terrific. Um, thanks again, Axe Wax. Now let's talk about your website, guys. Some of you are playing around in the DMs, and that's no good. You're, it's a dirty, dirty place. And I think you should really reconsider that your website is your assistant. It's answering all the questions. It's, it's sifting away the rabble. Because some of these people in the DMs just want to be your friend. And let's face it, some of you don't have any more, you don't want any more friends, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to akinteractive.com slash full blast. And Andreas Kalani is going to be the guy to fix your problems. He has 20 years of experience in design marketing for corporations before becoming a knife maker. He does design, he's designed corporate identities, websites, and entire branding for companies. He is not just a knife maker, but he's got a lot of experience in web development. So what you can do is get a hold of him at uh, akinteractive.com slash full blast. You fill out the paperwork, he'll talk to you, and he'll figure out exactly what you need. You could, you, you, he could give you a website that's mobile friendly that you can update with through your phone. Um, and that's really helpful. And, and what's going to happen is, is you're going to realize that your website can work for you while you're sleeping. You can post stuff and then it'll be, you know, if somebody in the, at two o'clock in the morning is buying your stuff, your website's working for you at, in the middle of the night and it's going to look great. He's made great websites for Steve Schwarzer, Mike Tyree, Charlie Lionheart, and plenty, plenty others. 
He speaks your language, and that's going to be saving you time because you're not going to have to fool around with people who don't know what plunge lines are or whatever something is. So I'm, I, go get yourself a good website from a guy who's has that experience, akinteractive.com slash fullblast. Thank you, Andreas Kalani. TR Maker, hold what you got, Matt. I got a couple more. Just a couple more. Don't worry about that. TR Maker, thank you very, very much. TR Maker makes bevel jigs, uh, and I just got one for a couple projects, and I'm really happy with it. I'm happy with the construction. It, it's very user-friendly. It's very durable. It's well-built. Um, it's, it's great. They make a lot of great stuff, uh, sharpening jigs, contact wheels, knife-making supplies, metalworking stuff. And the crazy part is, is I ordered it. He's in Turkey. He's This guy's in Turkey. I ordered it on a on a Saturday. Monday morning, he sends me this video. He wanted to put my logo on the, the beveling jig. It's Monday morning, I get the, the video. He puts it in the mail Monday, and I receive it Wednesday afternoon. I, I mean, you can't. I, I, when, I, when I posted about this, I got a ton of people saying, I know. It's got the be- he's got the best shipping in the game, and, and that's the, the case. And, and, and I, it's fantastic. So go to trmaker.com. Dot tr tr maker tr on Instagram or tr dash maker dot com uh, and buy yourself something from 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 tr maker he does a great job and he was super super helpful in the knife making community and I appreciate the hell out of you and last but not least I cannot thank Broadbeck Ironworks enough they ju- I just got the surface grinder attachment and it was awesome it's so well built and it really helped me out actually i'll tell you what i did with it i wanted to uh change the scratch pattern on some of my bevels so i used this i made a, a slight shim and the, on the magnet so that the knife is perched out a little bit and i used the surface grinder to take to chase uh to change the scratch pattern it was it was a really great product um broadback ironworks has a lot of great deals and if you go to knife talk.com they'll, they'll dot, if you go to knife talk all the deals are there. They have a lot of new deals, especially on uh, their leather sewing equipment. I guess you didn't know that they had that. So if you're looking for leather sewing equipment, attachments, grinders, uh, surface grinders, uh, their their grind their two by seventy two is very versatile. Goes horizontal, goes vertical. It's really dynamite. And if you go to BroadbeckIronworks.com, they have a number of knife talk related promo codes one is thick as one is knife talk 100 for 100 dollars off one thing knife talk 200 for 200 off another thing you're gonna have to go check them out uh and uh once again i i love i'm gonna have those guys on at some point soon uh broadback they, they they're knife makers making grinders for knife makers which is great and i appreciate them and i appreciate the fact that they helped me out when i it was in the definitely in their need okay so that's that broadbeckironworks.com many thanks okay Matt Parkinson's here. Matt Parkinson is the Neil Armstrong of Forged and Fire. The number one. He planted the flag, ladies and gentlemen. All you other kids who are who who start who are in it now, bow down. Matt is is an accomplished bladesmith. He's got like he must a bus got to be thirty years of experience at this point, something like pretty, that. Pretty damn close. Pretty, pretty damn, damn close. close. He's a yeah. fantastic guy. Dragonsworth Forge in Connecticut. He having he's got classes running, and he's an accomplished knife maker, accomplished sword maker, accomplished bladesmith, and he's here with me now. Matt, how the hell are you? I'm tired, but good. <laughs> Why are you tired? Uh, because I just taught four days of classes in a row. Plus, I haven't had a day off in about three weeks 
Plus, you know, you know like, work for yourself and then never stop working. I, well, you know, my I, actually, boss is an asshole. Just so you know. <laughs> when I first when I first met you, I I, I was I was actually going to meet a Mareko mm-hmm. at Dragonsmith Forge, and I met you, and you and I were talking about your you do a ton of teaching. You teach all yeah. over the country. Yeah. How did you get involved in the teaching circuit? Because it seems like as you're going, you're going everywhere. Yeah. So uh, basically, what happened? I kind of fell into it. Um, I started. I started working with Jamie and Peter, my two business partners, uh, back in like 2006, 2005. Right. And about the same time, I got married, and we had a client that was doing a lot of iron work for us, and we were we were busy. And then all of a sudden, that dried up, and I didn't have any money, and I was just married. And uh, Peter had taught at Brookfield Craft Center down in Brookfield, Connecticut for many years. It's actually where I met him. And he says, well, you know, hey, I'll, I'll talk to the um, education coordinator, see if you can get a teaching gig. You know, go down and, and teach a class. You can make a little extra money. Oh, that's great. So I did, and I set it up, and I'm all nervous, and I show up, and I teach the first day of classes, and, you know, kind of driving home. It's like an hour drive home, and I'm, like, smiling. I'm all happy, you know? Yeah. I'm like, man, that was that was awesome. I spent the whole day talking about blacksmithing, and nobody shut me up. That was great, <laughs> you know. And to drive a little farther, and went, yeah, that was that was really awesome, man. And wait a second, I got paid for that. <gasps> yeah. It was just sort of a mind blowing experience. And uh, and I, I think I was lucky because I've had, had some classes that didn't go so well, <laughs> but it really put me on to the idea of teaching as being something I wanted to do. It's, and something that was important to me. Teaching's hard. Teach. It I is. think you know. I was talking. I don't know who I was talking to recently, but teaching blacksmithing and bladesmithing. I was talking to somebody, and I was saying that you know, you could learn how to be a. You know, there are generations upon generations of like history teachers or English teachers or math teachers, mm-hmm. and you can teach a class, and they either get it or they don't get it. But when you're teaching like something like a blacksmithing class or a bladesmithing class. Yeah, you can say whatever the fuck you want, but if you don't bring your students over the finish line, there's a legitimate yeah. problem. And there's there's it's so difficult to teach something that's so physical, right? Without being because like, and, and there's a lot of teachers who just demonstrate it. Do it like this. Well, and if the student's not a visual learner, they're not going to learn. Do it like this. Yeah, you know. So then you have to be like, okay, well, what you want to do is this, and then you draw it, and you talk to about it, and you, you find a way to express it. And over the years, I found a way to, to like help teach hammer control through body position and um, you know, controlling movement rather than just do it like this. Right. And that tends to help as long as people listen. <laughs> but, you it's, know, it's like I say in classes, though, there's only two hard things to learn in blacksmithing. The first thing is how the metal wants to be hit. And then the second thing is how to actually do that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard things. to, exp- it's hard to explain it though. Like it's hard yeah. to, so I, I think that, I think that there, you know, the other thing is, is there's such a, there was such a huge lag. And I was talking to somebody recently and we were talking about the fact that, you know, blacksmithing as a hobby is a relatively new idea over the, oh, right. in terms of the gener- in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, a millennia. It used yeah. to be a profession. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, the countrymen, you know, the noblemen weren't like, yeah, hey, I'm going to take a fucking well, blacksmithing class. And, and super duper, like, like, high, like, it would be, you, you know, you wouldn't have a guy making knives and then railings. Right. You'd have a guy that would make this part of this knife and that's it, you know, and this part of this trailer or wagon or whatever, you know, whatever he was, you didn't have generalists the way we have now. You know, yeah, that is interesting. Every blacksmith is a generalist now. 
you know, they make their own tools. They make, you know, they'll make a hammer, then they'll make a knife, then they'll make a, a railing or they'll make a hook or, a, you know, whatever it is and whatever floats their boat. And that's awesome. That is not what would happen back in the day. Well, yeah. how would it happen back in the day? It was like, all let's say, all right, let's go, let's go back. Let's go back. Mm-hmm. So uh, a family wants their kid to become a blacksmith. Yeah. So then, how does it happen? Or bladesmith. Let's go with uh, So, I mean, this is mostly supposition because, you know, we don't really know. Right. Um, there's some records. Uh, basically, they would sell their child into indentured servitude by paying the, the blacksmith to take them on. Um, and it would be a deal like, you know, there'd be 11 or 12 year old kid and they'd go into the shop and say, I want you to take him as apprentice. If the master agreed, they'd give him a, a, a payment to support that child for, you know, five years or whatever while they were learning. Cause an apprentice doesn't make you any money until they've been there for five, six, seven, eight years. And then they start to make you money. So that's the thing is that, that by the time they were just about making the master money, they leave. So they had to be guaranteed for a certain amount of time. They'd sign a contract. They would go in and they would learn from the master smith. That never happens anymore. Like that's just not a thing. Nobody pays uh, to pick an apprenticeship anymore, if there is apprenticeships. And even then, it's not. It's not the same th- kind of thing. You take an apprentice on back in you know medieval era. You you were guaranteed to support that person for a certain amount of time. That's why the parent or whoever was paying that apprentice fee. You know, and that stuff we have records of because that's a legal document. So there's right. some legal documents, guild documents and such that still exist from uh, Europe. You know, so it's it's kind of known how much it costs. And that started to slip away a little bit, um, I think, in the beginning, like after the American Revolution. America kind of just did stuff its own way. And that's when you start to see more generalized blacksmithing because it's in the city. You can have like 20 blacksmiths and they just specialize. But as you start to get out into the country, you get more generalized blacksmithing, you know, okay, I'm going to go shoe this horse, fix the wagon, you know, and every farmer back in the day was a blacksmith, a little bit big quotes on that, you know, they would sharpen their own, they might shoe a horse, they might, you know, um, fix their plow, you know, repoint it, that kind of thing, um, mend things around the farm. That's in Europe and here, both, that's always happened. But they weren't really what I would say, you know, a blacksmith. They just did right. blacksmithing. You know, it was well, I mean, part of being could, a farmer. You could you could make the point that that's probably one of the reasons why one of the more common sized anvils that you can find, old anvils you can find in the United States, hundred fifty pounds, hundred fifty pounds. Yep, same thing. Why, easy to move, and that's why you can find a thousand, you know, hundred million uh, little giant twenty fives, which are a piece of junk. I hate those things. I can hit harder than those things, but they were designed to to sharpen plow, plow points. Yeah, right, plow points. That's all they were. That's all they were designed to do, and they're excellent at that. They're just jack all useful for anything else. <laughs> I've used a twenty-five pound little giant, and it was fun. I, I loved it. It hit. Oh, it hit great. All right. I well, for a knife maker, twenty-five pounders great. Oh, God, I mean, not no. for. Not for. I'm not oh. talking about like making big billets. I'm just talking about just like. Uh, I, all right. <laughs> I have a thing. I like little giants are like the least useful hammer ever built to me. I, I absolutely despise them. It's not the size. I just hate those hammers. Why? I don't know, man. They just, they're they're sloppy. They run crappy. They're finicky as all hell. Unless you put a brake on them, they they overrun and take the piece out of your hand half the time. They're just, I've run really well-tuned ones, and I've won really awful ones. And, you know, a friend of mine, Andy Billup, has a a Kiri hard that I helped him fix. 
It's a 35-pound hammer, and it hits 10 times harder than a little giant does. It's hmm. way more controllable. Well, I would trade my tire hammer for a little giant in a heartbeat. I'd rather have a tire hammer, honestly. Damn. Yeah, well, damn. I, I, I really don't like those hammers. <laughs> Hot take city. Hot yeah. take city. Remember that time I said in the beginning, let's not make some fucking fights? <laughs> That's 15 minutes in. I hate little giants. That's my line, man. That's my line. <laughs> That's your line. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I'm fascinated. I, you know, the, the blacksmithing, bladesmithing community is so fascinating to me because, like I said, it's, it is one of those things now where you, you know, it's hard to find teachers only because there's not generations upon, not hard to find teachers. Yeah. But there's generations upon generations of lost information that's trying to be kind of put back yeah. together. Obviously, you have guys yeah. like Peter Ross and stuff. Yeah. But, like, having to figure out ways in which to teach blacksmithing it's it's almost like you it is the wild west to a certain degree because there isn't you know decades and decades or the centuries yeah, and centuries and you, of teaching and you end up with this like especially in the blacksmithing world a little less so right now in the, in the bladesmithing world but you end up with these like schools that are yeah. starting to develop you know you have the the Erie hoffy school of bladesmithing or blacksmithing rather you know and he has his techniques and he has his hammer style and he has his ergonomic stuff and it works great for some people. Right. But it doesn't, like, for me, for my body type, I can't do it. It doesn't work for me. And then they have, like, the, you know, Brian Brazil, and, and his stuff is also big hammer. He's got this technique. That works great for him and for some people, not for me. And then you have, like, the, you know, Dick Sargent and those guys with the long handles and the skinny heads. That works great for them. I mean, I've seen Dick Sargent move one-inch square stock with a one-and-a-half-pound hammer faster than I can do it with a four-pound. Hmm. You know? He's just amazing, but it doesn't work for me. And I think that's just a matter of like each of those techniques work. And when you start to get really down into what's making them work, it's just all about ways to isolate, um, isolate pressure, you know, work the smallest bit, make it move the fastest, you know, uh, use the edge of the anvil to concentrate your force, use the horn to concentrate your force put a longer handle on a lighter head so it swings faster and you don't have to do as much work to get the same effect you know that kind of thing they're all just different ways of doing the same thing and it depends entirely on your body type your physical size and, and shape you know how your body moves what kind of muscle you make if you make a lot more twitch muscle like fast twitch versus slow twitch muscle a light hammer is probably better for you because you're not going to have the endurance for a big hammer if you don't make, if you make the opposite, a big hammer is probably better than a slow hammer, you know, or uh, a light hammer. Because me, I, I use a, a big hammer. I can forge for four or five hours straight and not have, not feel it. I run a one and a half pound, two pound hammer. I wear myself out in 45 minutes because I got to hit it too many times. Right. You know, it's just what your body is and how you do it. And you start looking at all these different systems and how they're doing it. And you can kind of distill uh, the commonalities from them. You know, they're not that different, is, I think, the thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, there yeah. is, I mean, I, you know, as a, as a my first teacher was Uri Hoffi, and, and mm -hmm. I, I tried to do his method for, you know, throughout everything, mm -hmm. and there were just, there were certain things that I just couldn't do. Yeah. Like, to the point where he saw a picture of me on what? Facebook forging, <laughs> yeah. and he fucking lit me up because he just saw how it was I heard he's a bit of a pistol. He's uh, a pistol. Mike, Mike was telling me... Uh, 
aggressive metal artist. He's telling me a class with him. He's like, yeah, I took a class with him, and you bring him something, and he goes, you fucked it up. Do it again. Do it again. Dude, Mike, Mike, Mike Cataldo, that's when I was yeah. working there. And Mike, I, yeah. Mike used to come down all the time, and he was he's the best. Mike's he's, the best. He's a good guy. I like my Mike's bar. the best. And I remember all those years, and this is back in the day. This is like, you know, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. something like that. And he used to take the classes, and that's exactly right. And he was, yeah. and it, you we, fucked he's it a, up. He's a character. He, he would say, what are you doing? You know, and then he'd like, <laughs> you yell at the guy. And you know what? It works for some people. It doesn't work for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I realized was that there was a lot of his system that it didn't work for me. A, yeah. a lot of it didn't work for me. And it does, it, does, it does mean that, you know, having the ability to kind of like see what's working for you. And then, you know, I like the idea now where you can have different styles of teaching and mm-hmm. you can have, you can have different ways. There's different ways to skin a cat, like yeah. how you forge integral knives. You can use it based oh, yeah, on the material totally. starting. And there's, there's so many great different, it's almost like kind of like martial arts where there's these different, you're there's these different techniques, but they all are the same. Yeah. I mean, it's the difference between capoeira and jiu-jitsu. It's, you know, they both are fighting styles, but they're not the same at all. Right, you know. Right, but if you learn both, then you can amalgamate your own kind of style and and go from there. You know. Well, it's it is. I think that the most important thing is is it's. I I appreciate the fact, and I thought about it a lot. Uh, I was watching your episode of Forge and Fire last night. You were the non the first the first episode first mm-hmm. episode. You're the first champion, and. All I could think of is, is you know that there's a lot of criticism of Forge and Fire. Just be, and it's, the criticism is mostly yeah. from blacksmiths and bladesmiths who are just like, that's just not, this isn't a good evaluation of a person's talent. Whatever. This isn't it's, a good evaluation. It's a game, man. It's not the. But here's what's fascinating about it right now. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the end of the end of May, the end of May 2022. Is this year at the ABS? This is the biggest class of people testing for journeyman smith yep in a long long time it's like 40 something people yeah. are testing it's and been going I, up every year for the last eight years and i don't think i think that that is the slow burn testament to the importance that forge and fire had on popular culture i i'm not sure it I'm definitely on popular culture but i don't know that it was a cause i think it, forge and fire is a symptom in a way, and and I say that because Forge and Fire would never have happened unless there was enough people interested in that idea to give the producers the idea to make the show. Yes, but if you look at the age group of the people testing this year, yeah, it's all under thirty. Hmm. So it, or I, it, around yeah. 30, 30 something it, and under. Yeah, it, it's true, and it's hard and to tell how much year, of it was. I mean, even yeah. you used to look at Jordan Lamote passes his, his, his master bladesmith last year, mm-hmm. and he what was he like twenty? He's like twenty two or something like that. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a younger group who saw it and was just like, whoa, this is something. Yeah, I think he's like twenty five, but he also won the show early on too. So there's that, you know. Well, I mean, I, I just, <laughs> what I'm saying is, is I think that being able, to, I think that, yeah. I think that you know, one of the things that what what I try to do, and, and I know that. But this podcast and knife talk to do is mm. we try to promote uh, the ABS and you know blacksmithing organizations, bladesmithing organizations because it does help you know. But it yeah, is when definitely. you when you hear that you know that there's 47 people or 43 people testing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great. It's it means that people give a shit about the ABS and then they're looking for a degree of standard. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and I think it's. um 
when I first went on, uh, you know, we all kind of knew everybody who was going on that first first season. And actually, for the record, I, I won the first aired episode, but it wasn't the first one filmed. Oh. And the funny thing is, the first one filmed was my business partner at the time, Peter Schwarzbert. Peter Burt Knives out in Hawaii. Yeah. So he actually filmed the episode before me, and he won. But they aired it later in the season. So. Whoa! So you... <laughs> That's so, so weird. Yeah, he, he was so mad. Was he? <laughs> yeah, well he, he well he wasn't super mad, but he he definitely got cranky about it. And it it, it was kind of funny cuz we filmed our finals the same night. So it was me and Rich and Dave uh Roder and and Steve. And we all came, you know, I came outside and, and I see Peter and I'm like, "You win?" He's like, "Yeah." Like, you? He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Oh, sweet." And then uh out comes um uh G J Nielsen and goes, "You mothers you're gonna make it look like we're cheating. <laughs> oh, I think that's part of why they uh, they ran it later because everybody from my shop that went on the first season won. That's one of the things I remember when I visited yeah. Dragons with Forge, which was which was awesome and annoying at the same time. Is you all had a <laughs> there was a wall. All four of you, and Mareka was there at the time. Yep. Peter and Jamie and you. Yep. You all had won the the Paragon Ovens, and you had all four. It was like the championship Paragon <laughs> yeah, we're down Oven to two wall. Now. Sucks. But it was at the time. I mean, it was like the most arrogant yeah. championship wall of all time. It was like. <laughs> Four heat treating ovens up back to back yeah. to back. You know, of course, awesome. I mean, we used the shit out of them. Mine's like starting to not heat as fast because I've run it so many damn times. There you we go. Have to replace the coil soon. We gotta call Forge and Fire and have them let them know. That, you <laughs> well, know I, think I'll just, I think I'll just call Paragon. That seems like too much work nowadays. I would imagine. <laughs> so, I mean, just back it up a little bit. I mean, when when you was were reached out, I mean, obviously you didn't have any idea of what this show was or what it was. Oh, actually, be. I, I did mean, though. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah, tell me the story. So, uh, I was actually on the, I, I can probably say this at this point, I was on the pilot that never aired with Jason Knight. And it was me, Jason Knight, Guy Harris, who's passed away now, and uh, and David uh, Goldberg. And they flew me out to Dave Lish's shop in Seattle, and we filmed for three days. I didn't do, did not cover myself in glory at that time. Um, you know, and it was fun, you know. Did the thing, came back, and then when they started to pick up the film for um, the season, they called me up and were like, hey, do you want to do this? And does your business partners want to go in because we need contestants? And I was like, yeah, I want another shot at that. And and I did. That was it. So it was, it was But did you think that it was going to be something that was going to last as long as it has? I mean, like yeah. I said, I mean, how many years? No, 14 assume, years? Some 12 I, years? Yeah, like that? no, I, I think uh, eight. It's been eight, I think. Seven, eight years. I mean, 2000, that's a 2005 was the first first one, and they're in season nine now. I think that's a television success. Oh yeah, no, they're they're huge. They own their own studio now. They're that's it's you know they have like two hundred something episodes. They're syndicated. Netflix money now. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you a funny story. Is mm-hmm. I've been on the on the down low saying on Knife Talk. That if you happen to be, I was I was talking to somebody. Oh, I was talking to Ben Snore, and I was like, he was on the podcast. He was on a Forge and Fire. Actually, they sent me the, the uh, you want to be on the show, and I just forwarded it. Ben. They had Ben on. He says he lost. He was like a, and I said, well, what did you do? And he's like, well, I just sat in my I sat in my hotel room and drank. And I said, what a terrible way to end. I said, listen, no. anybody who goes on that show, no. anybody who goes on that show, you send me a DM and say. I'm stuck in in Stanford and I have nothing to do. Okay, man. 
And I have a huge itinerary with the train scheduled to go into Manhattan. Yeah, go the see the Met, The restaurants you go man. to, the walk. I have, I'm telling you this. I've gotten 16 emails. Mm-hmm. I'm stuck in – no questions <laughs> asked. I'm stuck in, in Stanford. What should <laughs> even, I do? You don't say Stanford. I'm stuck in Connecticut. All right, go to the Met. You know, go to this. Well, go to that. But it's it's funny now because now it's this like it's this like thing. Like, like I'm giving them. The, like I feel like I feel like I feel terrible. I mean, can, the, the Fortune Fire should like take them on like a road trip or something like that. Yeah. I'll have like a tour bus, and then I, half the guys have never been to New York before. And then I, I'm giving them all the you know here are the here are the subways to take, and here's the this, and here's the restaurant to go to, and it's hilarious. But I, I feel this like I feel this need to help the people who you know it doesn't go their way yeah yeah and you know it's i, I love what forge and fire has done i i can't watch the show anymore because it's become a little too much about the um unless like i have a friend on i don't watch anymore because it just I, it just drives me nuts it's too kitschy you know yeah it's like i feel like they kind of they've gone the way of chopped where it was like super awesome in the beginning and now it's like uh well again all right. Whatever. Well, they're holding they're on. They're doing for dear another life. car. Come on, you know. They're holding on for dear life. I mean, they're it's not like... though. They, they, that's the thing. They have more people that want to be on it. They're fine. It's just not the direction that I enjoy watching. It's it's an awesome thing. It's not not have no problem with it. It's just not something I want to watch anymore. Okay. You know. Here's here's a here. I'm giving you ten million dollars mm-hmm. to make your own TV show. Pitch me a TV show. Oh, I have. I totally have an idea that I've been trying to pitch to people for years. So I want to do like a, a travel slash knife making show. I want to go like, you know, go down to Brazil, visit one of the guys down there and be like, hey, we're going to make a chef's knife in a week. You know, you and me talk in the shop. Tell me about your culture. Tell me about your 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 home. Bring me out. Show me local restaurants. We'll do a big meal at the end. Get everybody together. Kind of Anthony Bourdain style, you know. Wow, that sounds like fun. I know, doesn't it? Nobody wants to do it though. People, you know, the, the t- the, from what I understand, the TV game is is very easy right now. Like they're they're yeah. green light after the pandemic. They're just green lighting a ton of shows. Like sh- shows are getting green lit left. I right. think you know. I think things like that are going to happen because you know, it's the same kind of arc that happened with Chopped. You know, Chopped came out, and then there was a bunch of copycat shows that came out. You know, all these other things, Beat Bobby Flay, all that stuff. And then whatever ones stuck, stuck, and whatever ones didn't went away. But that also led to the more, um, you know, I guess, deeper shows like Chef's Table and, right. you, know, um, you know, Fat Acid Food, like all that stuff. Like the cool stuff that like, came out of that came out because Chopped opened the door. Right. And I think Forge and Fire is going to do the same thing. And at some point... And you can see it. They're playing with it. They're trying. You know, there's the Metal yeah. Masters. There was the, um, but they're they're starting to move away from that that competition side of it to more of the storytelling side of it. And I think you'll I, find a bunch of concepts that are going to be good coming. Out I of that. actually had uh, a couple of contestants from uh, well, one contestant from uh, Metal Shop Masters, my friend mm-hmm. Leah Arapach, and then one of the judges. Mm-hmm. And it's not a secret. I mean that the the guy who owns the shop, a metal shop masters, put put all the equipment up for auction. So yeah. it seems as though it's not coming back for a second season. And what was interesting to me was, and I think that maybe this is I always thought would be, it would be far more interesting to actually have a have a competition. But it's not really a competition. It's more like an art critique. Mm-hmm. And then instead of there being judges, 
maybe have the contestants talk about their work and then have almost like a discourse. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you kind of go into that down some interesting roads, but definitely, oh, definitely. Fuck, you know, there's, who the there's, fuck cares, there's so many different ways to go and it's, who cares? Yeah. Who cares? Matt Parkinson. We all care. Bring That's me why we back. Do this shit. That's why we always do this shit. We all care. That's the thing. No, we don't care. Everybody you know, cares. Uh, the problem. Here's what everybody we say cares that, about. but we, we don't like, what do you think about? I think about weird shit all the time. Like I think about like, you know, what does forged mean? You know, I, I think well, about stuff like that. And what, what does it mean? What is, what is the definition of forged knife? That is an excellent question that mm-hmm. I, I get gets me crazy right? when people use the word forged. Yeah. Because I, I, to, I hear way too much in general people say it's forged. And mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure they understand what forging means. <laughs> yeah. Like, because I also think a lot of blacksmiths and bladesmiths use vernacular that's a little bit too frenzy. Like, yeah. just hit it with some, just hit the steel with the hammer. Like, forging isn't just hitting with a hammer. No. Because if it was, if you hit someone in the head with the hammer, you're not forging their skull in. <laughs> well, I you mean, know? you might be, but, you know. Well, I mean, to me, I'll tell you what to me forging is. Forging, mm-hmm. this forging is the manipulation of mass. And that's yeah, mass the, and volume, the, moving volume. That is to me, mm-hmm. that is, and it's, it's not, it's not taking away, not necessarily taking away or not necessarily adding. It's just the manipulation of mass. Yeah. That and, to me, I break it down just to that. I, it annoys me too sometimes because I see so many people use it as a selling point. Right. And forging doesn't make things better or worse or anything. It doesn't, it's not a, a reflection of quality, whether an item is forged or not. It's just the technique you used. You know, and I forge because I like forging. I do this because it's, I mean, honestly, I'm stupid. I should just grind the damn thing and make make more money. I don't because it's important to me how the thing is made and how I make the thing. You know? For, but for you, be, it's different, because, especially with, with people who use Damascus. I mean, when I was trying to explain Damascus to somebody, I said, it's kind of like when you're making a croissant. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's even it, that, there's though, a lot more. Like, what'd you say? Even with Damascus, I look at some of the, I look a lot of Damascus knives, especially stuff that's made out of mosaics. And they're not really forged to my mind. The Damascus is forged. Like they've, they've manipulated the bar stock and then they make a bar of it and cut the knife out. And you can see it in the pattern. So talk to me in your impression, in your mind, what's forged? Well, I don't know. That's the thing. To me, it's not forged. For my, my definition of forging, for myself, in my shop, every feature of that knife has to be forged in. I forge the profile, the taper, the tang in. I forge the, sh- the bevels in. Everything. Right? And I forge reasonably close to shape. It depends on what I'm doing. How, you know, If I'm doing something in twist, yeah, I'm not going to forge as close to shape so I get a little bit more activity. And maybe I choose not to forge in the bevels at all if I'm doing a twist so I get really deep into there. And I can see the pattern. That's a conscious choice. Cho- conscious choice. Then I'm making as an artistic choice rather than a just this is the way I do it because this is how I do it. You, you follow? A hundred percent. And I, I mean, see it's... a lot of Smiths that, that, you know, and, and this happens, and this isn't like, this is not a judgment on this. You know, this is not, I'm not judging whether this is good or bad. But I see guys that, that do mosaics a lot. Maybe they'll bend the profile of the knife. Like Kyle Royal shows us all the time when he does, and I understand why he's doing it. So he can control the iteration and the shape of the pattern while he's, so it's an artistic decision. You know, he's, he's bends it to his profile 
and then he grinds the knife out of that profile. And that's fine. It's an artistic decision, but is it forged? I don't know. Because hmm. if, if you bought that Damascus from somebody else and then did the same thing, you would never call it forged. I buy Damascus. I never call it forged. Right. So and just I, well, because I, the person... And it's funny. I started thinking about this recently because um, on the board of directors for the NCCA, the, uh, the Northeast Cutlery Collectors Association, we hold an annual show in Mystic. It's actually next weekend. Uh, May 30th, uh, or I'm sorry, April 30th and May 1st. Um, and so we were redoing our award stuff, right? And I, so I was like, oh, we're going to do better awards because we just had, like, best custom, and it, it didn't really help when you're trying to compare forge knives to stock-removal knives to folders. Like, there's different things in a, st- in a forge or, or stock-removal knife that you're going to look for than in a folding knife. You know, fits are different, centered. You know, you don't care how a folding knife a fixed knife moves you know that's not a thing it doesn't move and then like the balance is going to be different there's there's just all these different things you can't really compare the two it's not fair to put them on the table together so we split the awards apart into three different categories and we created a forged knife category because that's a huge thing cool but how do you define that and then i had to kind of come say well what is it defining it and we never really came to a conclusion you know what defines it so I, it's kind of like, well, if you say it's forged, it's forged. We're not going to, because you can't really look at a knife and tell whether it was forged or not. You can look at Damascus and tell if it was forged or not um, by the pattern, but you can't really necessarily judge whether that was forged that way or or ground out of a bar, uh, especially on a monosteel knife. Hmm. It's a tricky situation, and, mm-hmm. a, and a lot of it has to do with just people's intentions yeah it's in their intentions of what they're trying to get out there and there's also there are these strange pecking orders that yeah people have in people have in terms of like what's better one of the things i've always felt is that and then this is a probably a modern day this i don't know if even it is a modern day concept but Mm -hmm. the different there's always been to me this pecking order between the artist and the craftsman Oh, where the sure. artist is someone, the artist is someone who is just so genius and gifted, and they're such a de- genius, and you just let them do their thing. Versus yeah. a craftsman is using who is excellent at a set of techniques and skills, and then implements them, but in not in a creative manner. And I, think, I always yeah. think that there's this strange. It's yeah. a very odd pecking order. Like you can, you know, yeah, you say yeah, to people, definitely. "It's a work of art," or "or you're an artist," and it's just like, well, it, you know, you know just, it always pisses really. me off when people tell me that because I hate being called an artist. And I like, I, I admit that sometimes I make art, and I, I admit that my idea is, you know, uh, like so. I had a friend of mine when I was growing up. The this guy Tom, um, he, he was an artist, painter, be- beautiful painter, and we were talking one time, you know probably high uh about uh <laughs> you know about the nature of art and what is art and what right. about you know and he just goes matt it, it's just truth art's truth i'm like what do you mean he's like that's just what it is it's truth hmm. and i'm like and it, and it started me thinking i was really high so that probably is why uh, it started yeah. me thinking about it and i'm like well it's not i kind of adapted it. it's not art is truth it's art is an expression of truth and i think what it more means is like Art is about what it's trying to express, and craftsmanship is about how you make the thing. And craftsmanship and skill are never linked, really. You know, skill is about how fast you can make something. Craftsmanship is about the final product. I 
it's it, it always is interesting to me how people deem them all mm-hmm. like there's this subliminal you know I, to me i you know i went to i have a degree in art and mm-hmm. i hate it when people call me an artist yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> i fucking hate it like i hate i hate it you well because it's about the art's about the expression and the end result it's just about you know invoking emotion in somebody who looks at the item it's about it's about telling a story or, or uh, pulling an emotion or something out of people. It doesn't really matter how you go about doing that. You know, the art doesn't have rules in the sense of like, you know, you have to paint it just so. Yes, if you're working within a style, you, the technique's important, but it's not. You know, that's that's Jackson Pollock's whole thing. Like he invoked emotion with his paintings by breaking all the rules, and that's that makes it art. The you know? funny thing, the funny thing about Jackson Pollock is, is everyone just seems to think he th- that he had a very, very, very rigid way in which he painted. Oh yeah, like every definitely. Every, and it, and it, it's it, it's it's lost on a lot of people no. in terms of there is a rigidity. <laughs> he is he to, is very it, copied, and people I, I think tend to miss the point when they copy him most of the time. This is the thing about a lot of art in general. I mean, mm-hmm. the older I get, the more conservative I become in regards to what art is and what art isn't. Mm-hmm. And I find it to me to be more about the execution of a, an original idea or design, and you're expressing yourself yeah. in, a, in, 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 in an execution to the point where you're not, it's not. And I, I also feel like it shouldn't be very, I don't think it should be as nebulous. A lot of times, a lot of times I've talked to people who believe that yeah. art should be art should be pretty or beautiful yeah. and that's not the case no it's definitely it, it's it's expressing it's an expressing yourself in a manner that's you know it's it's a physical manifestation of expressing yourself yeah well and, and just because something's art doesn't mean you have to a like it and b that it's any good it doesn't mean it's not art because it's not good it just means it's not good art that's <laughs> like, right you know that's you know, the one thing the, the whole my... like the whole idea people get so mad about the banana on the wall thing with duct tape like it's still art you may not like it you may not get the point of it. You may think it's stupid that somebody spent that much money for it, and I would agree. But it doesn't make it not art. <laughs> this is something that it's hard to broach because yeah. for years I've been saying to people, "Knives aren't art," and it's gotten me in a lot of trouble. Right, but, but they are art because they function; they have a purpose outside of it. But what I've never gotten into is because good art versus bad art, because that would just uh, make everything good. Craftsmanship. Versus bad craftsmanship. That's another question entirely. That but one that, we have. We'd have to do a whole other like podcast on on what is good work. Like that's a whole other thing, man. We got. I got you right here. Tell me what's good work. I don't think we have enough time for that, man. We got time. All right. So I started actually. I, you know, I write a column for Knife Magazine. I've been I've been trying to get this into a column that's less than fifteen hundred words because I wanted to put this out in the world. And I'm having a little trouble because it's, it's kind of a big subject, you know? Yeah. Essentially, it works down to, like, let's, let's use the analogy of a table. A woodworker makes a table, right? Yeah. Table's flat, stands up, it's a good table, right? It's appropriate yeah. height for what you want it, it's right. flat and it stands up. But they don't seal it correctly, the joints are crappy, and, you know... The wood's probably subpar, and it warps, and it moves, and in six months, the table's leaning to one side, and the legs are cracked, and it falls apart. So was that a good table? No, it fell apart. Look at another table. That one is absolutely beautiful. It's perfectly finished, right? But it leans to one side. In 200 years, it's still sitting there leaning to one side. Is that a good table? 
It's got a deck of cards under one foot, but it's functional. Which is the good craftsmanship. We don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, like, you look at knives as a good example of this. You see knives, you look at the knife and you look at it as a form and you judge it by how centered the plunge cuts are, how clean the finish is, how, you know, well fit the guard is and the handle fittings are. Right? Cool. That's, that's what we see. That's what we can judge. And then we, we take the, into account, okay, well, the, the artist or, 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 you know, or whoever made the knife, the artisan says, I did this for the heat treat and I did this for this and it's this steel and we're taking them on their word because you can't visually tell the difference between steels. Like that's not going to, th- that's not a thing. You can't say that's right. 01 and that's 5160 by I. You just have to go, okay, that's, that's what he says it is. And you can't really tell good heat treat from bad unless they really, really messed it up visually. So you just have to take that on account. And then the construction method, you can't see that, so you got to guess it. You know, are those shoulders nice and tight on that guard and everything's beautiful because the quarter-inch thick knife was filed down to an eighth an inch all the way around the shoulder, and that made it easy to fit, and the guard's really sloppy and just glued in place? Or is it fit properly and, you know, there's maybe a, a small ridge or something that, that they fit up against to make that fit? We don't know. We don't know until that knife is used, and 95% of our knives are not going to be used, at least not to their, uh, I guess, to their failing point. So we don't know if it's a good knife. You know, most of the work that we see out there, we have no idea whether it's good or bad. So what's the, so what does this mean? Uh, I think it's partly education, education of makers and education of, of collectors. You know, there's certain things you can visually see on a knife and say that's good or bad. You know, geometry cuts. You look at a knife. I, I look at knives all the time on Instagram, and, and I'll go, well, that, that knife's not going to cut. The edge bevel is, you know, the secondary bevel on that knife, I can see it in the picture, and it's 3 16 wide. That knife's too thick. It's never going to cut, right? Even if that thing's at 15 degrees, either the edge is going to chip, or it's too thick, or both. You know, it doesn't matter what the heat treat is if the geometry is bad. And then, you know, you look at a handle and, oh, well, that's got hot spots. That's never going to work. You know, it's a perfectly square full tang handle with just the corners knocked off. That's not a knife that's going to be used comfortably for much, you know. It, but most people don't care because they're not using their knives for more than maybe opening a box or cutting some string. The exception to that is, is culinary knives, which is why I love making culinary knives so much. They get used. I sell a $2,000 chef's knife. It's going to get used. It's going to get used, and I'm going to get an email from the customer going, got home last night, took the knife out, made a steak, cut the steak, thoroughly enjoyed the knife and the steak. Right on. (laughs) I love those emails, by the way. (laughs) But they're few and far between, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Customer emails, for some reason, are are not the. And usually, you get the email, and you're like, Oh, something go wrong? Did they put it through the washer? Did something go? You know, did they did they screw something up? Did they not you know oil it? Or is it rust? What happened? And then you get that the last line. You're like, oh, oh, this is so good. <laughs> that's that's the most amazing thing. It's like you have these relationships with these people, then mm-hmm. they receive it, and then you didn't hear anything, and then you got to go with. I guess no news is good news. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know, until something bad happens, and then you know you take care of it. Mm-hmm. So take me back. You're growing up. Your dad takes you to Sturbridge Village, yeah. puts you on his shoulder. You yeah. see the blacksmith hitting a piece of steel. 
And that's what gets you into it as a seven-year-old boy. Yep. Pretty much sparks and fire and smoke and noise. And I'm doing that. That's me. What was the first, when you get, what was the first class you had or first, so, you know, yeah. real? So my, my kind of introduction to metal was just my family. My dad had a machine shop, not like a real machine shop, but he had like a, a little um, Unimat lathe and drill press. And we, we used to race RC cars. So I would build parts for my RC cars because I couldn't afford to go get a replacement part. So I'd, you know, take a bit of fiberglass or aluminum, make a little swing arm or something. And then my grandfather was a welder. And, you know, I went and visited him one time and we made a knife out of a file. That was the first knife I ever made. I was probably about 11, 12 years old. I broke it. It's horrible. I still have it. It's a terrible knife. Terrible. Well, um, you're 11. Yeah. You know, exactly. But, you know, that, that gave me the idea that I could do things like that. You know, and then I'd steal my dad's propane torch and I'd bang nails on the back of the vice and make little toy swords and shit. Use up all his propane. <laughs> um, do stuff like that. And then, and then that kind of... Then I found, like, the blacksmithing books in the library. And I read those, you know. Art of Blacksmithing and... Um, the, the, what was the other one? Uh, um, Edge of the Anvil. I read New Edge of the Anvil. I read Art of Blacksmithing. Donald Streeter's book, uh, Professional Smithing. That was another one that was really important for me. And then... Uh, uh, you know, I read anything I could find that was blacksmithing, I'd buy it or and I'd read it. You know, it was just a thing. And I started putting a shop together, and then I and I ended up just kind of messing about with it. Um, but I also went to machine shop. I went to school for machining. I went to a tech school, and I graduated from a uh, manufacturing engineering program, Final Tech, which is their fancy way of saying machine shop. Um, but I didn't like machining because the, the tolerances are too much, and it's just this machining is weird. It's like, Especially in Connecticut, it's all aerospace parts, so it's it's really high tolerances. Like, you know, you're talking about a two million dollar part, and it has to be measured at fifty degrees, and you have a plus or minus, you know, um, two ten thousandths of an inch, you know, at fifty degrees. It's, it's measured with an optical comparator, or you know, it's like I don't want to mess that up. I don't want to stress about that. I don't want to do that. I never never worked as a machinist. Um, but I was doing blacksmithing as a hobby, and then, like, I lost my job. I was working in a factory. I lost that job, and I couldn't find anything else. This was, like, 95 or 96. And uh, I got uh, somebody offered me a spot at a rent fair. So I threw together a bunch of candlesticks and whatever I had lying around from messing about. Put a tent together, did that, and it led to another one, another one, another one, and I did rent fair for, like, 15 years. You did renaissance fairs for 15 years? <laughs> uh, pretty close. How how many would you do a year? Uh, it, depend, it slowed down. In the beginning, I would do, like, a whole circuit all summer in the Northeast. So I would do, like, a couple shows in Connecticut, uh, a couple in Massachusetts. I did a couple in Vermont. Um, I think I even did a couple in Maine. Uh, so you were busy. Oh, yeah. I would, well, every every weekend I had a show, you know? Every weekend for six months? Yeah, roughly. And then oh it would be God. like, it'd be, you know, it'd be like you go and, do, you know, set up for the show um, and I'd demo at the shows. I had a, like a portable demo set up and I'd forge stuff out in the show and then I'd work all weekend and then I'd come back to Connecticut. I'd go back to my shop and I'd bust stock out for the next week and then I'd go back up to the next show and then I'd do that from like, you know, end of April, early May till like October. And then the winter I'd just work on orders and like, you know, hopefully have money around Christmas and then usually by like 
January or so, I'd be broke again and start all over. <laughs> um, and then uh, once I joined the shop with Jamie and Peter, we were doing railing work, and that slowed down. I stopped doing as many shows. We were still doing a couple shows because um, that was the original idea. We we're going to get together and do rent fairs together, and then we got ironwork jobs on the side, and that ended up being more profitable. So we did that. Um, that's really what built my shop. What were you selling? Tell me more about the Renaissance here. What were you selling? <laughs> uh, in the beginning, I was selling like candlesticks, um, hooks, like you know, kitschy stuff. Like you, you, and I would I wouldn't do just rent fairs. I would do uh, like art craft shows, that kind of stuff. Um, I did like uh, Sugarloaf a couple times. I did um, uh, it was like a big one. And <laughs> I remember I did the show in the Hartford Civic Center. It was like a three-day show, and I did awful. It was terrible. I sold like one table. That was like the entire weekend. Totally lost money. And the last day of the show, I'm trying to I'm trying to pack out so I can go home, and I'm super pissed off, cr- cranky, because I didn't make no money. And there was a fish show going on in Hartford, and it was like the most miserable thing ever. There's like all these hippies with dogs, and they're like blocking me. They're not <laughs> letting me in the fucking civic center so I can get my shit. And I'm like, I get a, you know, I got a big old Renfair van. With the, like, they're like, you're a hippie. You can't come in here. Like, Fuck you, man. I just want my shit. Here's my pass. Let me go. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was awful. Uh, do not miss that shit. <laughs> do you? Did you do the uh, Renaissance? There's a Renaissance fair in the Hudson Valley. That's like a big one. Uh, which one? The the Oswego one. The one in in uh, in Tuxedo Park. So I did I did that one, but I worked for a friend of mine. I didn't actually. I never actually had a booth at that show blacksmith thing. I did that one for my friend Jason, uh, Jason Bakudis. He's a, a sculptor, and I worked for him for a couple of years there. And then I, uh, Peter, Jamie, and I, and at the time Michael, had a booth at Oswego up in uh, Sterling, Sterling Renaissance Festival in Oswego, New York, for a couple of years. That was the last show I did, actually. In 15 years, you must have at least a couple of good Renaissance Fair stories. <laughs> yeah, a couple. I need one at least. Oh, uh, shit. Come on, uh, man. Give me a good one. I don't know, man. I, I haven't even thought about it in the years. Um, I don't know. What do you <laughs> You want to talk about the people who got hammered and, like, <laughs> I don't know, fell on their sword? I don't know. I stabbed myself in the back with a sword one time doing a sword demo. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's hear that one. Uh, I probably shouldn't talk about that one. Uh, so when we used to do the Connecticut Renaissance Fair, we did a cutting demo with swords. And then, you know, sharp swords. And we'd wear uh, um, lanyards, you know, to, just to control the sword in case something happened. And I, I made a cut that was stupid. It was a rising cut. Uh, so the, the back of my hand is the leading edge of the sword. And I came upward and I caught the uh, cutting stand. So, you know, you, you're, you don't have any power in your hand when you're pulling against your fingers that way, especially if you're kind of rising cut. So the sword came out of my hand and I continued, you know, I continued my cut up and the sword continued back and it flipped around and nicked me in the back through my jerkin. Back? And I didn't, and, yeah, and I didn't even know I got cut, like, because it, it was a sharp sword. And I just kind of played it off because I'm in front of people. And I'm like, doo whatever. And the girl I had working for me in the booth, she comes up, she goes, Matt, Matt, you're bleeding. <laughs> I'm like, what? And I like reach back and there's a trail of blood all the way down my back. From this like oh. half inch, three quarter inch cut that's like, you know, pretty deep in my back. <laughs> oh my god. That was fun. 
Speaking of swords, <laughs> I, last time I was at your shop, you know, you showed me your sword that you made, and I, you know, I have a t- I have a policy of not touching other people's knives or swords, and it comes from a place of like respect yeah. because I always feel like I'm just gonna man. drop it. I'm gonna drop it. I, I know I'm gonna drop it. <laughs> and you said no, 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 no. This is a holder, and mm-hmm. I was amazed. I was thinking about it because it was incredible. The I had really no idea how much balance there was. And a lot of it was based mm-hmm. on the weight and the size and the pommel and the counterbalances. How did you learn about sword making? Because I didn't ever really thought about the fact that these swords that you make, these kind of, I guess, this Eastern style or, or medieval style yeah, swords mostly, mostly medieval. are so geometric, but are also so weight and mathematical. How did you get involved with, with that? So a lot of that was using the swords and then studying what I could of old blades, talking to people, reading books about it. Um, it wasn't until fairly recently that I got to actually handle um, real medieval weapons. And that was sort of mind-blowing that was like, you know, I held these things and I'm like, oh, okay, I wasn't screwing this up completely. It's, it is, this does feel like one of my swords, you know. Um, it really is like kind of an esoteric thing to, to, to be this obsessed with swords. Like the two things that I'm most obsessed with in making are chef's knives and swords. And I kind of, I look at both of them as opposite ends of the same spectrum. Hmm. Uh, and they, they share a lot of the same issues and like thickness and taper are super important for both of them. Heat treat, you know, geometry, um, construction methods, they're all very important to both culinary knives and to swords. And swords kind of, they're what Peter Johnson calls uh, objects of power. You know, you, you say the word sword to somebody and, and there's a picture in their mind. And that right. picture isn't just of that thing, but it has connotations. You know, if they're of European descent, generally the first thing they think about is the cruciform sword, and that brings them to knights and chivalry and, you know, Knights in shining armor, riding up to castles and saving princesses and all that crap. Um, if they're Northern European, a lot of times the first thing to think of is Viking swords, it leads to Vikings, and there's that whole, like, you know, rallying against the darkness, indomitable spirit of you're never going to put me down kind of feeling. And if you're Eastern, it's the samurai or the, you know, um, in China there's the there's a whole whole mythos around the John and fighting for the you know, protection of the people and all that. And every culture has that, and it's all they're all different, but they all kind of have that same core of value of what that culture values, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and it's that's the thing I kind of really, really love about sword making. So, like, in sword making, there's, there's different schools, just like there isn't anything. You have the guys who are making historical reproductions, and they're trying to be as accurate to originals as possible. Thickness, taper, and all that. Then you have the guys who are making fantasy stuff. And within that, there's this whole group of mythopic stuff, which is like trying to take something from Tolkien or, you know, C.S. Lewis or whatever and and bringing it into this world and making it real. So you're kind of bringing something from that myth and making it a real, tangible thing and therefore bringing something of that myth to reality and making it real. And I kind of had an epiphany years ago realizing that both schools are doing the same thing. 
Because when somebody's recreating a Viking sword, they're not thinking about Vikings as they really were. They're not thinking about the raping, pillaging pirates that went and destroyed the monastery at Linsfar and killed all the monks. They're thinking about the all thing and the indomitable spirit and the power and the, the just, I'm going to sail into the, the sunset and I don't give a fuck what's on the other side, but I'm going to do it anyway. That kind of spirit that the Vikings, that's what we think of and we feel about them. Not right. the burning, raping, pillaging thing. Right. And same thing with knights. Knights were assholes, man. They, they killed people. They weren't, they weren't good people. You know, you look at, if anybody who studied the Crusades knows that the cruciform knights were not good people. They did horrible things over and over again. Crucifixions and, you know, impaling people on, on spikes. Like, this is not things that nice people do. But we don't think about that. We think about the knights in shining armor and chivalry and these lofty coals, you know? When I make a sword, I'm trying to make that real, not the other side of it. And then culinary knives is kind of the same thing. Because to me, a chef's knife is the center of that kitchen. And the kitchen is the center of a home, right? And if you look at culinary knives around the world, it's kind of a, a key to that culture and that, that, that food and the center of that home. And it's kind of like a, a way of, of exploring other cultures without leaving your home. You know? Yeah. It's kind of neat. Or leaving home and studying it. That's cool too. But There is something about cooking that is mm-hmm. – I, I, it's nurturing. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, there's only it's... there's three universals in all of humanity. You have the three Fs, I call it. It's, you know, and we'll, we'll use the, the – the... Go ahead. Feel free. <laughs> so you, Fire them off. You have family, fighting, and fucking, and that's it. Right. Those are your three, three commonalities for the entirety of humanity. Every culture does it or there's no culture. You know? Food is the central one that is the center of family. You know? If you're not eating – you're not, you're not alive. And if you're not with your family, there's no point in eating, to my mind. I, I talk to uh, guys like Finkel Ferguson and people who, you know, culinary knife makers who are, you know, do a lot of cooking, Tomer mm-hmm. Botner and guys who are like into cooking, you know, you know and it's yeah, like yeah. there is something very, I mean, the concept of making, I do like culinary knives mm-hmm. from my history is being in, going to culinary school and working in restaurants. The, 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 the people that I love making knives for are usually first time knife buyers who mm-hmm. just want something for their kitchen so they can look at when they're cooking food for their family. Yeah. And there is something very, I'm not a sentimental guy, but it is something very, it's, it's kind of uh, cool. It's a nice yeah. thought. It's it, a nice thought. It's cool to be making great grandma's knife. Like, that's what you're yeah. doing. You're making the knife that's going to be great-grandma's knife in three generations, you know? It's going to get passed down, and somebody, you know, when you're long dead, is going to hold that knife and go, this was made by a blacksmith back in 2020, and grandma, great-grandma, great-great-grandma bought it, you know, or grandpa or whatever. Like, that's that's kind of a cool feeling. That reminds me of a funny Uri Hoffi story. We mm-hmm. were doing, when, back in the day, you know, the Center for Metal Arts was the Center for Metal Arts and Fine Architectural Metalsmiths. It was two, basically two companies in the yeah, same building. And so when John Ledford and I were working on railings, Uri Hoffi would be teaching mm-hmm. these classes. And I remember we were working on a railing and Hoffi was taking a break and he came up to talk to me and John. And he was asking us how we put the, the pickets into the railings. And he, and, and he says, I made a pick, I made a railing 
where the pickets were the pickets were in the baluster and or in the bottom of the railing and then they would drill a hole into the into the staircase yeah and yeah. Then put it in and he we said well how did you put it in he goes i just use Cicaflex. he says it's gonna last forever it's gonna last forever and i remember john saying to him yeah you're gonna be dead in 20 years what do you care <laughs> you know and that's yeah, that's yeah. how i feel about it all anyway it's just like when i'm dead who the fuck cares what grandma's gonna do with my knife yeah, i'll well, be dead who cares i mean it's it's kind of nice to have something that's yeah, it's left super lasting, nice but it's but like, funny too to just be like hey do whatever the hell you want with it i'll be dead in 20 years so <laughs> exactly exactly no and, there, and that's true like you know it's i did a lot of iron work and railing work too and some of that stuff yeah, you do what the architect and the client wants because that's how you make your living. And sometimes you make choices on that railing, and you're like, "Yeah, twenty years, I'm not going to be in business anymore. It's fine. You know, like I don't care." I, th- that happened. Mm-hmm. A lot of people feel that way. Yeah. W- one of the things I, I I love I love a number of years ago I remember looking at pictures. I think you and Nick Anger and Greg Sims and all these like uh, murderers row of knife makers and bladesmiths were at Peter Johnson's. He had yeah. like a number of classes. Yeah, He's, yeah. Peter Jonathan Johnson is like Mr. Sword, the sword class. He and then the man. classes he guys had mm-hmm. was a murderer's row of bladesmiths. Oh, yeah, teaching, no, because it was like know. that was me, Nick, Jason Morrissey. Um, who else was in that class? It was a bunch of guys from Europe. Owen Bush was there. Uh, Matt Berry was up that time, the last class. I mean, like Hall of, yeah, Hall yeah, of Fame was, class. Yeah, no. Hall of Fame Every time I've been class. there, it's been pretty pretty epic you know what's what i love to see is when you guys are designing the knives the swords mm-hmm. i had never realized that you're using the, how much compasses well that's whole, that's peter's a... whole thing like he, he and he's got a great point that swords were not designed with rulers like the numbers weren't like standardized measurements didn't become a thing till the late 18th century or 19th century really um you know 1890s 1870s like before that everything was laid out based on a ruler and compass like you just that's how you did work you know you'd have a drawing you'd say oh take that measurement and then you transfer that measurement with a compass and you'd walk a distance and in a weird way it's more accurate and less precise that makes and less precise yeah it's more accurate in the sense you're always measuring to center so if you lay something out with a compass like especially in woodwork you're you're always working to the maximum resolution of your tools because you're always laying the work out to center of the line, right? If you lay out with, uh, say, a, a micrometer or a, a dial caliper or something like that, you're you're always working to the the smallest number that your tools can have the resolution to. So you're not as precise necessarily. You're not going to be. I'm exactly this number. Because you don't care what that number is, but your accuracy is going to be higher. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, there's a book um, uh, by Hand and I, um, uh, Lost Art Press, I think, produces it, puts out, and it talks about laying out with a compass versus and the straight edge versus with tool, you know, modern tools, and how that affects design in terms of um, proportion. Because once you lay out with a compass, whole number ratios are really easy. And it's just, oh, I'm going to divide this circle in half, and now I have two half circles, or I'm going to divide it by a third, and then I have three half circles or three-third circles, you know. And it's certain cuts with the compass, it makes it very easy to divide things up and get those standardized proportions. The golden mean becomes super easy and intuitive. 
I was just going to say, I would imagine that the, you stumble on the golden proportion mm-hmm. right off the bat by just yeah, using... and Fibonacci's and a few other s- sequences like that. You know, it, and Peters Johnson thinks that, and I, I tend to believe him that they were purposefully using in sword creation specific sets of ratios and specific layouts of cuts in terms of how they were laying out sword hilts. And he he's. He's probably handled more swords and documented more swords than just about anybody alive right now. And I think he's actually probably documented more than you at Oakshot had at this point. Because um, he spent most of his time the last 15 years traveling around Europe to different collections and different museums and documenting, measuring swords and all sorts of other weapons. He is it was in the unique position after seeing that many and then with his design background to be able to take that and go, these are all based off the same set of proportions and he can overlay these proportions using, uh, I think he uses uh, Adobe Illustrator and he's got these proportions that are in, in his book, uh, uh, Sword Form and Thought from the Klingsberg Museum um, produced it. It was the catalog for this the exhibition and he goes through all of these different ratios and layouts, and you can just lay them on top of these swords, you know. But I don't build, um, I don't tend to build medieval swords, and I'm not reproducing things. Rarely will I do that, but most of the time I'm not. I'm building something that's kind of spreading the line between medieval swords and the fantasy sword. So, like the one I just finished, I used a geometric layout and I used a simple ratio. I think it was um, five to one or it was five two, five two for the hilt, and everything was based off of those two two ratios. And then I used certain points within that layout to like dictate the curve of the guard, um, the curve of the pommel, uh, the two side curves, all that kind of stuff. That was all laid out in the geometry that I used to design the sword. But I wasn't basing it off of any medieval geometry. It's just in in my inspiration, if that makes hmm. sense. Um. You know, there's there's whole rafts of swords that that are there's there's a, the castle on find uh, it's a, a find of swords in uh, France and it's uh, basically a barrel of swords that were uh, in in water so they're all in pretty good shape and you look in museums and you look at a sword and say oh that's a castle on sword that's a castle on sword and they all look virtually identical but then you put them next to each other and they're four or five diff- inches different in overall length. Because they were designed proportionally. So all the proportions are exactly the same, but the shorts just shrunk by, you know, two inches in length and everything else was proportionally shrunk. Do you think you could have, do you think one could have identified a sword maker just by proportions? Um, So this goes back to that thing. There was not one man making swords. Or a school or a style. Yes. Like... Definitely. I mean, if they Definitely. if you're a pile of swords, you can know where they were from yes, based on a proportion. Somewhat. <laughs> is that so? There is a lot of issues in medieval swords with fakes, like a lot. Fakes. Yeah, a lot of issues with fakes. Most of what you see in books, and especially in auction catalogs, the vast majority is fake, and they're not recent fakes necessarily. They could be Victorian fakes. Or even older sometimes. Um, so they're they're legitimate antiques, but they're not medieval swords. You know. Can you identify a, a fake? 
most of the time. What is, what I are talk some about of the things? Oh, you won't talk about how you. No, because that makes it easier for the fakers. Oh, it's sort of a general rule. It, it, I don't care. I'm not putting it out in the world. It's, <laughs> there's, I mean, there's, there's the obvious ones that everybody knows, like the patina not matching or looking like it was done with acid. That's a pretty obvious one. Um, wrong materials, wrong kinds of fits, things like that. You know, it, having made swords and knowing how they're made, you can look at a sword and say, eh, no. You know, there was one sword. I, I, uh, Greg Sims and I got the chance to go into the, thank you, Greg, again, thank you, uh, to go into the basement of the Met and examine swords. I remember him taking oh, pictures man. from that. It was amazing. It was probably one of the highlights. That day was one of the highlights of my And Emiliano, life. right? You were there with Emiliano. No, too. that was a different time. That was the, oh, that okay. was, I think that was the Token Kai, the Japanese okay. sword thing. This was just Greg and I. Um, we got the chance to handle like a bunch of medieval swords and daggers um, and some rapiers and document them. And I've actually reproduced with Jordan one of the swords from that 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 examination um didn't do it as a reproduction i did it as an inspiration which was kind of fun we we did uh, all the geometry all the measurements all the, the silhouette of the original sword and the weights and balances everything but we did everything in modern material so it was all like highly pattern welded damascus and then pommel was set with damascus rings and silver rather than the concave silver plate that the original had. So it was kind of like a modern interpretation of that that was themed around the idea of fire and ice. When did, when was Damascus used in medieval swords? Was it? Uh, no. Yes, sort of. So we, we, basically <laughs> well, Damascus I, let me go back is to mosaic. I, I, I had a story about the... Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Just tell the story. So there was a dagger that I had him pull, or a sword that I had him pull, and the the curator Don Larocque looked at the sword and he says, "This one is fake." And I think I know what the faker's name was. This is this guy Marshall. That this sword is fake. So really, and he's like, "Yeah." And mind you, the sword that he pointed out is in records of the medieval sword by Ewart Oakshot as a real sword. Okay. Right? And he says, "Yeah," and I have another sword in the catalog that I know is fake, and I, I know it's from the same person. It's like, I'll, after lunch, I'll bring it out. And he brings me this sword, and I look at it, and I've seen this sword in books, and it's a famous sword. And I'm like, that's fake. And I looked at it, and I held it, and as soon as I picked it up, I'm like, this is fake. It balances off. Everything was wrong about it. And I looked at the guard, and it, it had a very unique cross-section. of a. It was like a flattened diamond or with a flats in the center. And the guard fit perfectly. On every surface. And I said, this is always fake. And I can tell, I know this is fake because of this guard fit. And I looked at Don and said, this is why I know it's fake. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, if it was a medieval sword, the guy making the guard and the guy making the sword would never be in the same place. They weren't together. You know, it was two different trades. And the cutler would be assembling everything. And if they didn't have the sword blade in hand, they would never get the fit this tight. So, yeah. See, this is why I like having guys that know how to do this stuff in here. <laughs> wow, that so that is that's that's fascinating. So, mm -hmm. in my mind, I'm thinking you that you're being able to you you can pick a fake because of the proportions, not just that, because that's of too. The... But see, not all medieval swords are proportioned that way. There's bad medieval swords. Some some medieval swords exist now because they were crappy swords and never got used. 
They, st- they, they stood in the back of the... Yeah, well, not necessarily wall hangers, but like munitions-grade swords that were just stuck in the back of the army because nobody wanted to pick them up because they felt shitty. You know? Wow. And then other medieval swords exist because they fell in a river. Maybe there was a river because this is a shitty sword and I'm throwing it away. Or maybe it was because the army fell in the river. I, you know, who the fuck knows how it got into Thames, you know? <laughs> that's 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 got to be... So, so do you, I mean, do you love kind of investigating the just by looking at i'll tell you why this is fascinating i recently a friend of mine gave me a reproduction of the apollo hammer i saw that that is cool man dude my friend is the cnc company and he Mm -hmm. is obsessed with the moon obsessed with moon landing and everything like that and he had these there were no records really of how they made the first hammer that went to the moon but he says, with pictures and documents, documents mm-hmm. stuff, we figured it out and we just made them and I made a pile of them. And he wanted me to have it. And it was just like, you know, this is, and he's like, and I want you to use it. I'm like, I can't use this. He goes, why <laughs> not? Gonna use number one, <laughs> number one, the hammer isn't a fucking, I mean, it's a, not heat treated. No. So I'm going to destroy it. What the hell are you going to use it for, right? <laughs> number two, as I said, you know, what the interesting thing is when you look at it, what you see is, is the handle is completely round and it's right. it's it's thick yeah. and it's because a guy who was wearing fucking astronaut gloves can hold it. Yeah. You know, there were and all it probably these, works started... awesome in zero G. Not so great yeah. here. <laughs> well, and then the, the checkering on it, mm-hmm. I was it cut my hands up. But I mean, I would think that in a hand, you know, in a in space with an astronaut, okay, you don't have to worry so much about like and the head's so small. It's because they're not really smashing rocks; no, no, they're no. trying to like chip things away. And I I did really enjoy kind of taking a look at something that was designed by scientists. Mm-hmm. This replica, this replica wasn't made by blacksmiths or no. hammer makers or anything that they're just like i want to make a fucking space hammer <laughs> so i would imagine for you it's very similar mm-hmm. that you're a modern day bladesmith sword maker and you're able to look at these you know relics mm-hmm. and really kind of have a, a much stronger understanding of these things than the textbooks because you know you know how these things are put together and how they're how they work yeah and, and the same thing with uh you know i've tried to get some reasonably close relationships with people who have used these as well. You know, Christian Tobler and I have talked, haven't talked to him in a while, but uh, we've definitely had conversations about, you know, why swords want to be balanced a certain way and how they're used and what makes them important. What makes that important? How they're, how the physical balance and the center of rotation affect how the sword is being used. Um, cutting with them, it tells you one thing. It just tells you how it cuts a static object, but you know, Swords that were used in battle aren't cutting static objects. They're cutting and defending and doing things that we don't think about swords being used to do, you know? Right. It, they're, they're very odd things. Swords are weird, too, because nothing else that humanity has made has been strictly for the purpose of killing other human beings, um, except for maybe nuclear armaments. like. Er, in rockets, you know, like everything else we've ever made has been used for either hunting or, you know, building creation. Especially historically, you know, bows and arrows, hunting, and then also for war. You know, it's crossbow, hunting, but also for war. You know, shotguns, rifles, all these things were used to hunt as well as to kill other people. Knives, spears, everything. Swords were never used for anything but killing people. That's it. Well, and then the queen would knight you with one. 
It was a was a, a ritual. There was some ritual stuff, and too. it was a ritual because they were saying that your life is mine. I oh, knight Jesus you. Christ, your life is mine. <laughs> I, never thought, I never thought about it like that. It, that's what it is. You're you're swearing fealty to the the king, queen, earl, whatever. You're there. You're being knighted by them. They agree to give you something in return, but you are swearing your life to that person. That's heavy, right? <laughs> That's heavy. I, 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 it's, it's all, it's all fascinating to me. I, I think that when you forced me to hold that sword, it was really one of those things that was like, okay, now I get it. Yeah. That might have been the first sword I ever picked up. Yeah, to be honest, or probably the first real sword you ever picked up. That was definitely the first real sword mm-hmm. I ever picked up, and I got it, and mm-hmm. I was surprised at how light it was. Mm-hmm. I was shocked at how light it was. You feel what it wants to do. You feel what it's for. It. Yeah, and not all swords are light. Like there's definitely you know there's certain types of swords that are are heavier and thicker, and they're designed for um, thrusting or you know going against armor or whatever that that they need to be made in a different fashion. But even those, you pick them up and you go, I get it. That one was, it had much more, I, the action to me just automatically felt more pivoting. Yeah, it's a cutter. Like it it's was a like, cutter. like pivoting yeah. was like, it was like, for some reason, I just got that feeling from it. Now, take me back. Take me back. Mm-hmm. I remember meeting you not too, I remember meeting you at Blade Show 2017, also the year that you got your JS. Yeah. You got your Journeyman Smith. Mm-hmm. And you also won 2016, mm-hmm. but you also won, you won the journeyman knife of the year. Nope. No, I didn't. That's 17, 2017. No. Uh, no, I did the, uh, I made the journeyman knife. Yeah. Uh, the one that sold that's, <laughs> it's not winning anything. They ask you to make a knife for them and then you, you make it and give it oh. to them. And do- it's like a donation thing, but I oh. made that, that, that was good, but oh. it sold for a record amount, which was pretty cool. Um, I also remember, so t- take me back, think, t- say, tell all these 47 people, I'm going to have a couple of them on before Blade Show, <laughs> what suggestions do you have for these guys, it's like a month or two away, oh, everyone's losing their fucking minds for the journeyman, what sage wisdom do you have for these guys who are listening now, preparing to go so, down to Atlanta to test? One thing, just don't reinvent the wheel, like... Make things that the judges are going to understand. Doesn't it's not a don't stand out. No, I stand out. That's fine. Okay, but like make okay. things that they understand. So when I when I went to do journeyman, I never made ABS style knives with big air quotes there. ABS, you know, I didn't make Bowies. I didn't make that kind of knife because I'd always done stuff from Renfair and uh, medieval stuff, stuff without plunge cuts, saxes, things like that, and. I very much went, okay, where's my commonality with these guys? Like, where can I start to look into knives that they're going to understand and that I'm going to understand and be able to put something on the table that they'll be able to judge? Because if I put a sax down on the table, they can't judge it. There's no reference for them. You know? It doesn't have a plunge. They're not going to understand how to look at that and say, is this good or bad? And it's not a judgment on their their skills or anything. It's just they don't understand. It has to be known within their context. Right. You put a Japanese sword down in front of these guys. Some of them will know because they study Japanese swords, but most of them will go, I don't, I don't know, it's a sword. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's cool, and then put it down. But they can't judge 
anything about it because they don't have a context for that. So give them something that they can understand and that'll go a lot easier on you. Because if they can't understand it, they're going to find a reason to fail it, you know, because they don't understand it. So when I made my knives, I did that. I tried to make knives that were within their style, but my style as well. And I found things that were um, compatible with both. And it really opened my mind and my endorsed to, to my work and put me in a different place. The second thing is, what they're really looking for is just that you have mastery over your skill and you're making what you intend to make. There's a lot of reason that they look specifically at plunge lines and how that interacts with the choil because that's a line that is easy to mess up. And if you're not doing what you intend to do, that starts to creep away from you, that, that choil goes forward and they don't line up. That's why they're looking there. So if they look at a knife from five feet away and it just looks not right, they're going to fail you. They'll come over and find a reason, but they're going to fail you. If they look from five feet away and the knife looks right, the, the proportions look right, everything looks okay to them, they're going to look at the knife quickly and make sure there's no glaring errors, and that's it. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. You got to remember, too, there's a lot of guys in the room, and seven, and seven judges have to look at all those knives, and they don't have a lot of time. I heard they're going to extend it and do it in several groups, and they're going to have a bunch of judges this, this year. But even so, they're probably going to have maybe 10 minutes to look at your knives. So they don't have to go under this crazy scrutiny that MS does. You know? Do you think that they're going to be, because there's so many guys and gals uh, applying, do you think that they're going to be harder on, the, on this group? I mean, 40-something. Uh, I don't what know. You say? I really don't know. You don't want to. Th- you don't think they're just going to rush them through? Come on, all right. Come no, they're definitely not going to just pass people to pass people. That defeats the entire purpose of it. Right. You know, really, if you want to get JS, build the best knives you can. Don't get fancy. You know, don't do engraving. Don't do inlay. Don't you know? Don't do all that stuff. Just build a clean knife with good fits and good finish. That's it. That's what they want. They want to, it's not master smith, it's journey smith. They want to know that you can master what you're doing. You can put the product out you want. It's of good quality. The geometry makes sense. The handles make sense. The designs are making sense. And again, that, that means that you have to design within their, um, their understanding. Like if you're right. making knives that are maybe well-designed, but not within their context, they're not going to get it. You know, I did take a risk when I went, I, I took a, I put a culinary knife down and they passed it, but I, I was, not a lot of those guys understand culinary knives and I was a little concerned they were, they were not going to get it. And I just, well, that's the, that's the natural progression. Yeah. That's yeah. Gonna, culinary knives are well, gonna now, be a big part. Well, yeah, now there's, I mean, there's at least two or three culinary knives in, in every, every uh, cohort now. And the year I went, uh, I put one down, Bill Gorlick went and put one down. And there was one other guy. There was three knives in the room that were culinary knives. Before that, I think I'd only seen like two. You know, and then the next year, I think Greg Sims put one. One of his sets was a culinary knife as well. When do you think you're going to test for Master Smith? I ask this all the time. <laughs> well, I wanted to do it this year. I just I had some health issues over the winter, and uh, I just couldn't work and didn't really uh, didn't really get my stuff together to be able to do do it this year. So. 
hoping for next year. I have a plan at least now. I have ideas. I have some uh, exciting stuff I want to do to put down on the table. So that's that's good because I, I was kind of my last run of MS. It really got in my head and it fucked me up pretty good. Like I didn't, you know, it's a big thing when you're testing because you're like you get you let it get inside your head, and it just um, there's a lot of self doubt and questioning and you know it, it it's insidious how messed up it is. You know? But maybe self-doubt's okay. I mean, isn't that like what it's supposed to be? So, so like, as an example, um, the last time I went and tried to test, uh, I, my dagger was a, a Renaissance Quillian dagger with a ring hilt, right? And I did a thumb well. And I put the thumb well where I know it's supposed to go, which is on the backside from the ring, because the ring isn't there to put your thumb through. The ring is there to protect your knuckles, right? And I know that. And I designed the dagger around that, and I put it on the back, and I get a message from somebody, well-meaning, who was like, that's on the wrong side. And I said, no, it's on the right side. And he said, no, no, it's on the wrong side. And I said, what? No, it's, not, it's on the right side. I know it's this is how they're held, this is how they're used. It's, it's got to be on that side. So I, I kind of looked through, and I couldn't find any pictures of the backside of fucking Quillian daggers. So I second-guessed it, so I reset it, and I turned the knife around, I put it the other way, and I put it together, and then, and I just, you know, and he was well-meaning, he was, was, two people, when I was doing the MS stuff, reached out to me, you know, Lynn Ray and uh, Dave Lish, and both of those guys, I gotta, I gotta say, it's like, that, that scores a lot of stuff with me, just that you were, like, trying to help me like that, you know? Yeah. Um, But it's funny, because I put it, put it together backwards, and then I showed it to, uh, um, Vince Evans, he goes, why'd you put this on the wrong side? Oh <laughs> I said, I know, God. right? And I'm like, I couldn't find any pictures. <sighs> the only ones I could find had, you know, had it, uh, didn't show it. And, I'm, and he's like, he's like, oh. And he pulls up his phone. He goes, this is from Victoria Albert. And it's a shot from the back of a glass case showing me the knife. And I'm like, okay, now next time I'll do it the right way. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. But it's, it's that kind of stuff. Like, I second guess my, I know that. I mean, I, I've. I know how these daggers are made. I know what they were, how they were used. I know that the well is supposed to be on the other side or on both sides, but I didn't do it Ugh. because, Ugh. you know, I didn't do Ugh. it because I didn't think the judges would necessarily know that, you know, and maybe some of the judges thought like Dave Lish did because Dave Lish has mostly seen just other ABS makers make these knives, so he's looking at what the ABS makers do, and a lot of them. They don't know because they've never seen the medieval knives. They're right. just going. It's like this filtering of like one guy did it based on a medieval knife, and then fifty guys did it copying that guy and did it got it backwards because it didn't make sense. But isn't there any way when you're in the judging that you're able to expl- explain yourself? Yeah, I'm sure you can, but you know, as soon as you got to explain yourself, you're probably failing. <laughs> Damn, you know Damn, that's a, that a fucking yeah. good point. Yeah. Persuasion is not no, persuasion part of is the, not uh, a good idea. Like. I like to think of the, the judges as angry old men with sharp eyes, and some of them yeah. aren't that much older than me, but, you know. And then I found out that, I didn't test, but I found out Kevin Cashman was in the room, and I was like, oh, fuck, I was really going to fail that, because he's like the dagger guy, you know. <laughs> and and I, I didn't test, but I did show my knives that I was intending to submit around Blade Show, and they would I would have failed probably, but not for the reasons that I didn't submit, which is interesting. So now you have an extra year. Well, so 
So that was in 2019 that I, I was supposed to test. I, I did my performance twist test in 2018. So you have three years to, to submit. I was going to submit 2019, and then the dagger, I end up finding TIG wells in the pattern from, like, my second stack. And I was like, I can't. I can't put right. this down on the table. Because, oh. like, if I, if I see this knife in five years, I'm going to be like, there's TIG wells in the pattern. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's like, ugh. Not for Master. It's gonna get you crazy, right? So I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm just not. You know, I went home, rode my motorcycle super fast, and got drunk, and then came back and finished my shit for Blade Show. Um, but I left left all the stuff I needed to test, except for the knives. I brought those to Blade. I showed them around, and I got a lot of good advice. And you know, most of my knives would have passed. Um, a couple of them wouldn't. I probably would have failed. I probably would have failed. Um, so it's probably good I didn't test. 2020, I was gonna I was gonna try to put a set together and test at ICCE because um, I was supposed to be demoing at the Abana conference the same weekend as Blade. Right. Well, and then I got the news yeah. that you couldn't test at ICCE anymore. So I'm like, okay, ICCE is gone now. But they're saying you can only test it at Blade Show. And I said, well, I'm not gonna be able to Blade Show. I'm not gonna put a set together for 2020. That's stupid. So then I, I only had the next year, 2021 to be able to test. Except, of course, 2020 happened and none of that happened. None, no, no shows happened. Right. So then 2021, they let people test in Texas, but I didn't have a set together because I didn't think that was going to happen. They tested a Blaze show and, and Jordan did it, but I didn't think I was going to be vaccinated. And I, I wasn't really sure Blade show was going to happen, to be honest. Um, that was the Jordan Lamote show. Yeah, I mean... He, that was the Jordan Lamote show. Seriously. He killed that it. That was man. the Jordan Lamote show. I tell you what, personally, he I appreciate it. He came up, he came on the podcast mm-hmm. half an hour before he was going to go down. Oh my God, he he's so anybody. awesome. He didn't, to- he didn't so tell humble. anybody about it. He didn't tell anybody <laughs> about it. And then he told us on the podcast that he's going to go down to test, and I'm scared shitless. It was awesome. <laughs> and then, and then, so yeah. the podcast goes out on Friday, and everyone's flooding my messages. Did he pass? Did he pass? <laughs> and I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea. But it was so awesome. Nice. He's such a good dude. He's an Indian now. Yeah. Update. He was uh, had a real problem. He was that road scholar. Uh, was the road scholar yeah, he was going to do? And then that was that fell was 20, through, and now he's an Indian now. Yeah, 2020 a, is when he got that the scholarship. He was supposed to go into 2020, yeah. and now it's like two years later he's finally there. So, How good of a guy is Jordan? Jordan's awesome. He's one of my very favorite makers. You know? I mean, you can't get it. I mean, that family, So too, nice, I mean, so humble, so talented, you know. And he had part of his brain taken out. Yeah, he had, yeah, right? He had part of his, what is everybody, everybody's complaining <laughs> and stuff like that. He had part of his brain <laughs> taken out, and the guy's like a genius. He didn't even need all of yeah, it. Seriously. <laughs> Tell me about the Mystic Show that's happening this week. Yes, so Mystic Knife Show. Uh, it's in Groton, Connecticut, at the Mystic Marriott. Uh, nine to five on Saturday and nine to three on Sunday, I believe. Um, it's it's one of the best Northeast shows. I mean, it's been around for forever. You know, it used to be in Stanford, then it was in Mystic, and by the um, Seaport. Now it's in Groton, and it's in a beautiful ballroom. It's a really great show. There's a lot of awesome makers who do the show. Um, it's really worth checking out. It's probably the best deal in knife making. Like you to get a table at this show, it's 175 bucks. Wow! And then and then you have to join the um, the uh, group for 20 bucks. So it's 180 or 195 bucks. You can get a table. 
Not that there's any Excellent. tables left for this year, but we've been sold out for two years. So how many knife makers? Are I think there's 180 tables, roughly. Holy cow! Yeah, it's a good size show. Huge. It's a good size show. I'm not sure. There's purveyors and there's dealers and everything from rusty pocket knives to um, you know Richard Wright selling his. Uh, I don't know if he's going to have a folder this year, but he sells like twelve, fifteen thousand um, dollar encrusted switchblades. You know. Wow. Yeah. And then that's so. How do you, how would you? Is there like a website? That yeah, you uh, NCCA. On? It's uh, N- uh, I don't remember what the website is, but if you do, as you search NCCA knife, it'll come up. That sounds exciting. Yeah. And then you have many, many classes. Yeah. At tons and tons of classes. Let's talk about the classes now. You don't have to <laughs> go as far anymore. Yeah. Now you can do everything from the comfort of a Wilcott, Connecticut. Yeah, we put together a pretty nice studio for teaching. Um, as you know, you've been there. And we try to really um, make it a good environment and a happy, safe environment to learn and to teach in. Um, you know, I've, I've really taught in a bunch of schools all over the country, and I've tried to put everything that was good about those schools into my school, and everything that was bad I tried to leave out. <laughs> I'm, I love it there. I know I got a class mm-hmm. there on the 15th of May. I think there are a couple slots left for Tong. Yeah, I think you openers. have two spots left. So guys, get in, get involved. Learn yeah. how to make some knives. Learn how to make some tongs. Support a guy who's in the space is beautiful because the light comes in and it's fantastic. Yeah, really nice fantastic space. space. And you know, right now we're pretty full up. We have some intro classes out in July. I think that's some space. And I have a, a Damascus Chef's Knife class coming up that's got some space. Otherwise, we're pretty well packed. So that's good. Yeah, the, the Damascus class I thought was going to be better. It's not a. We're not making the Damascus. I'm going to provide you a billet. Um, but we're going to do like a you know. Bolster, nice stabilized wood handle, forged blade, get everything heat treated, go through the whole process. And I like teaching through Damascus because it helps illustrate how the material moves. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a real good illustrator of being like, you remember when you did this thing I said not to do? Or remember when I said to do this thing and you did it? See, this is why. See how that moves right there? You can look at it and say, oh, yeah, right. Now I get it. You know? Last question. Sure. Something I've been wanting to ask you for years. Your one of your hashtags is turning the world to dust. Yeah. And I actually thought that's back in the day, I thought that was so cool I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know if it was a knife making thing. <laughs> and I actually used it yeah. and then I felt guilty nah, use it. I didn't use know it. really use it. I didn't know what it meant. So where does we're turning the world to hashtag turning the world to dust come? <laughs> so I have to go back a, a little bit. So that, that came from the time when my son was itty bitty baby and I stayed home with him. And my wife was working. So I would work all, I was, you know, I'd, I'd take care of the kid all day and then I'd work and I wouldn't go to the shop. I would, I'd had a little polishing station in the basement and I'd get super tired. You know how little babies are and eating sleep, but I couldn't get my nap, whatever. And I'd go in the basement, I'd work till like midnight trying to get knives done. And I'd get kind of loopy. And I got into this kind of, you know, nihilistic headspace. Um, and I'd watch uh, videos while I was doing it on my phone or on the computer. And one of them I watched was our old Arctic Fires. Um, it was the What's that? Arctic Fire was a hammer and they did up in, uh, it was an online hammer and they did in uh, uh, Alaska. It was uh, Don Fogg. Uh, Dave Stevens put it together. Don Fogg did it. It was Don Fogg, Owen Bush, Jake Pawning, uh, Yule. Uh, I'm missing somebody. Oh, uh, um, 
Ah, I don't remember. But anyway, it was all these great sword makers. And Don Fogg did a sanding demo, a pan polishing demo, right? And he and he like said something about um, everybody wants to be a bladesmith, everybody wants to forge stuff. That's the exciting part. But really, you know, if you want to do this for a living, you just got to learn to make your work into dust. So it kind of came off of that statement, you know, and it, it was, I was kind of in a bad place and I was looking at it. So I, I signed an Instagram post at the end with hashtag started with turning my work to dust. And then it just started turning the world to dust from there. And I didn't think anybody noticed it. And then actually Charlie Ellis was the first one to comment on it. And then somebody else picked it up and somebody else picked it up. And now it's just sort of the one I use. I picked it up immediately, yeah. and and then I saw Ed Braun was yeah, taking yeah. it on, and I was thinking of all these guys. I was just like, "This is some like." And then I named and then inner I named circle my, shit. Yeah. This is some inner circle shit. <laughs> then I named my column that too. So, so that's where uh, uh, my column in Knife Magazine is turning the world to dust. So there you go, Matt Parkinson, <laughs> Dragon's Breath Forge, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go follow Matt. Sword Matt on Instagram. Go to Dragon's Breath Forge and look at all the classes he's teaching. And let me tell you this: no experience necessary for a lot yep. of them, especially the one I teach. You, there's guys who come in, never picked up a hammer before. Don't worry, we'll get you over the finish line. Yeah, the, That's what a teacher does. The only classes in there that are are not beginner are clearly marked as like think one class right now that only has a little bit of space. I have um, Charles uh, Gendritis coming in to teach a folder class. And he wants some basic, you know, grinding skills at least sure. before taking that. And I, I can totally understand that. That's the best thing that if you're listening to this podcast, you're a woodworker, maybe you've never done this kind of stuff before. You don't need to be, you don't need to have a lot of experience behind an anvil in order to get there. Just show up and you will have a good time. And Matt and the teachers will get you across the finish line. And it's the best way too, because you take a class, you know, you don't spend, it's you know, a couple hundred bucks, maybe 400 bucks tops for a class. and you don't spend $2,000 on a grinder and $1,000 on a forge and $1,000 on an anvil and go, oh, I don't really like this. This is scary. There you, you go. Know? You, you, you get the experience. You get somebody to lead you through it and show you how to do it safely. Because this is the dangerous stuff. And like, if you don't have somebody to show you this is the dangerous part, don't do this because this is going to happen, you can get hurt. I've gotten hurt tons of times because I didn't have that person to tell me, don't do this because you're going to get hurt. There you go. Matt Parkinson said it all. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for coming Thanks on for the having show, me, Matt, man. as always. You, we're going to get you back on because that was a lot of fun. Awesome. We don't want to talk. I have Anytime. to have a whole show about fakes and maybe we'll do some <laughs> yeah. sort of game show and like pick the fake oh, or something like that. We'll God. figure something out. We'll figure something out. Guys, right listen on, to me. Go go follow Matt, Matt Sword Matt on Instagram, uh, Dragon's Breath Forge. Go to the Mystic Knife Show. Support the Mystic Knife Show. Get involved with whatever these guys are getting involved in. This is a small community, but it's a beautiful community, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. God bless you. And, uh, Matt, thank you so thank much. You for and, me. uh, yeah. you, you're the man. Yeah. I don't know about that. See you soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying you're the man. You're the man. Right. We'll see you next see week, you next everybody. Time. Bye, Matt. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.